Well, today we celebrate the sanctity of life. As I mentioned last week, we are going to be celebrating today, observing the sanctity of life Sunday one week in advance. January 22nd, next Sunday, churches all around our nation are going to observe the sanctity of life, but for us, it's Chinese New Year. So we want to talk about a different topic next week. Actually, when you look at the text, it talks about how the world will hate you. So i got to do some work there, too, in the Gospel of John, right? So, so I, I actually think it's okay to talk about life, the sanctity of life on Chinese New Year. But we'll, we'll be sensitive and wise. Uh, but the sanctity of life comes every single year, that Sunday. So we're not going to be able to cover everything about this topic today, but we're going to begin with our vision because everything starts with our vision and what God wants to do. Today, it's more about the culture that we want to build, okay? It's the culture that we want to cultivate here. Our vision, and many of you are familiar with this, you've seen this, is to glorify God by being a vibrant church of disciple makers driven by a passion for God's word, God's family, and God's world that reproduces vibrant churches locally and globally. When it comes to the sanctity of life, our understanding of human life begins with God's Word. God's Word informs us with God's design and purpose for His spiritual family and biological families. But we live in God's world. We are in the state of California, but the state of California even is under God's reign, ultimately. It's under God's sovereign rule. And so God's Word for His family informs us of how we are to understand and engage God's world with the Great Commission. And we want to reproduce vibrant churches locally and globally and that aspect of reproducing life. Now, this vision applied directly to the sanctity of life. As I mentioned, it's the culture that we hope to build. I believe that the essence of this culture exists in your hearts and in our group leaders and, and in our church, some of the structures and ministries are not built out yet, but that's why we have agency partnerships. But first, we want to be a church where those who have had an abortion can experience God's grace, forgiveness, and healing. I understand that we exist in an honor-shame Eastern culture, but if we want to be a church that upholds life in a state that is a sanctuary for death in the womb, then we need to preach life. And this includes men. This includes men who have either asked their significant other uh, to have an abortion in the past, and they need healing. Right? Oftentimes, we can receive the gospel of Jesus Christ, but it takes time to apply that gospel to yourself and to say, hey, I forgive myself because of the gospel. We want to be a place where we proclaim God's grace, forgiveness, and healing, not shame. We want to, secondly, be a church that walks with women and couples who choose life despite an unwanted pregnancy. So if there are teenagers or just even adults who have an unwanted pregnancy because you're not yet married and you're ashamed to tell your parents, you're ashamed to tell your family, you think your church is going to disown you if you have the child, I understand that the Bible tells us that there are consequences to our decisions in life, but we want to be a church that walks with people who choose life despite an unwanted pregnancy. This includes counseling. This includes walking through past hurts. This includes can we be a church that financially supports people who have been disowned from their families because they chose to do what their hearts convicted them to do from God's word? Are we really going to be a church that helps people make the hard decision to respond to God's word for God's family despite what the world says? 
So we want to walk with people. We want to walk with people physically, all those needs. And lastly, and I think this speaks to our culture, is that, is that we want to be a church that supports families whose children are born with serious medical needs. And this, we don't have the systems built out, but we do have a special needs ministry. But through agency partnerships and potential future ministry, this is one of our dreams, that we can walk with these families. Because you guys know what it's like when you're sitting there in that room and the doctor tells you, hey, you know, your, your child, your unborn child might have these defects or these pre-birth deformities or defects. We recommend abortion. That's a dilemma. What do you do? For families who say, we understand that there might be a cost to having this child, whether it's suffering or a difficult life, is there a church community that will walk with these parents who do what they do? They choose to have the child because of their love for the Word of God and their belief in God as the designer of all life. Will we be a church that walks with these people or support agencies that give us the resources and and we can work together okay so that's the dream that's where we're headed i believe this culture exists in your hearts i believe this culture exists but this is one of the ways that we can be a vibrant church in our community now i want to begin by discussing the sanctity of life today and that's point number one that's movement number one in our talk today is that the sanctity of life today what i what i mean by this is that the conversation has changed over over the decades and I believe we need to be equipped, and this is especially true in light of speaking to people and generations in a post-Christian world. In the modern times, in the modern times, what we, know, what we refer to as modernity or modernism, and this is about from 1900 to the 1940s, the world still believed that you could discover objective truth. So people who were arguing for abortion they wanted to present that the, the unborn fetus is just a fetus, it's just an embryo, it's not yet a person. And the reason why the pro-abortion people would argue that way is because people believed in moral right or wrong, and it's evil, and it's morally wrong, everybody agreed to kill a person. So if you could somehow show or prove through reason or some type of argument that the fetus is not a human, then it's not wrong to murder the fetus, or it wouldn't be murdered. It would be taking the life. It wouldn't even be taking the life, right? It'd be eliminating a piece of tissue, right? So Christians, what do Christians do? So Christians argued for personhood, rightly so, from the Bible, and for morality. Then we moved into post-modernity, and this is anywhere roughly from the 1970s to the 1990s, where in post-modernity, Postmoderns did not believe in objective truth, that you could not discover or find objective truth, that the truth is subjective to whatever you choose. What's right for you is right for you as long as you don't hurt anybody else. And so the emphasis for the pro-abortion argument became a woman's right to choose along with the culture. So what did Christians do? So Christians continued to argue for personhood, morality, but there was a greater emphasis on the psychological impact on women who choose to have abortions. The lasting psychological damage. Now we've moved into a very difficult and dark time. And we've had our series on being disciple makers in a post-Christian world. We are in post-Christianity where everything in secular society, and you guys know this is true on your media feeds, that everything is about a power dynamic of who is oppressed and who is the oppressor. And so now there's this discussion 
where to ban or prevent abortion is oppressing the basic human rights of women. Now, I understand where this argument is coming from, saying that in an unwanted pregnancy situation, the woman has to bear the consequences of the pregnancy and the child. The man can walk away free. And I know it's especially sensitive in the case where there's an unwanted pregnancy as a result of rape or incest. And so I, I, I hear where this argument is coming from, but they're going with the culture. So now the abortion rights discussion is about a power dynamic of male oppression of women. It's turned abortion from a science and reason and philosophy discussion to one of basic human rights. And so as Christians, we need to be winsome. We need to continue to speak about personhood because that's what the Bible presents. We need to discuss morality and moral right and wrong. And we have to continue to talk about the psychological impact. But Christians must. The burden is on us to show that the Christian worldview on life is, I believe, more pro-woman, meaning the Christian worldview better upholds the dignity of women than the pro-choice or the abortion rights position. We are pro, we're not just arguing for the unborn, we're not just fighting for the unborn, but our heart is for the woman, even after she has an abortion, the gospel has healing and restoration. The creator of life himself will forgive you, and he'll make you whole, and the men as well, but also we are pro-children. The child will be raised in possibly a very difficult situation, and we're pro-family. And I really believe from the bottom of my heart, and I know you do too, that the Christian worldview is actually more pro-woman and frees the woman's soul from things, from things, from evil and darkness and bondage that the other side could not even touch upon. Okay? So that is the Christian argument. We need to start with the biblical teaching. The biblical teaching focuses on personhood. I want to show you a few passages. Again, we can't cover everything, but a few passages on the biblical teaching of personhood. We begin with Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. Everything begins with where the value of a human being comes from. Genesis 1, 27 says, God created man in his image, in his own image, in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. For another time in another sermon, you will see that even male and female is part of our God-given identity, meaning God created you with your gender as part of his image. That's another discussion for Sunday school. We'll talk about that. But we need to be aware of this too. But this passage is powerful because the image of God is what gives us value. Someone is a person because of the image of God. The image of God stamped upon a person is what separates a human being from animals and plants. God created plants. God created plant life. God created animals but he did not give them the image of God that he gives to human beings. And so this is where we start. The basic, the basic uh, understanding and biblical argument for personhood goes a, something, goes a little something like this. First, an adult human being is the end result of the continuous growth of an organism from conception. So let's just say a grown man at the age of 33 years old why do I say 33? Jesus, a grown man at the age of 33 years old, comes to that point because of a continuous chain of growth. 
In other words, there's a necessary chain of events that need to happen in order for you to reach adulthood. If you cut that chain at any point, you don't have life. That's just basic biological science. Whether you're Christian or not, everybody agrees with this. That's number one. Number two, from conception all the way to adulthood, you stay the same person. Think about that. In other words, after fertilization, the embryo experiences an unbroken and continuous development. At no point in that development does the embryo, fetus, or child change its being. Hanley Lu, in the womb, does not become Jeremy Lin when I'm born. I wish. Right? You just don't change. You don't change just because of a change of location. You're the same person, which means it's the same person. If you take the life of a man at the age of 33, it's similar to taking his life as an embryo or fetus. That's the Christian argument. Now, consistent logic says taking the life of the, of the man at the age of the 33 would be the same as taking the life of a man before he comes out of the mother's womb. That's our understanding. Now, where do we get this from? Where else? Well, the prophets. You look at Job. Job 3.3. Now, Job, the context is Job is lamenting his suffering. Job cursed the day that he was born, specifically pointing back to his conception. Now, Job says, let the day perish on which I was born, and the night that said a man is conceived. So he saw his suffering. So I want you to think of pre-birth deformities, but it's a little different for Job. If, would any of us tell Job, hey, Job, it's better if you would have just been aborted. Your life is so horrible. We would not because we understand that God is completely sovereign over Job's life. And Job, even in his lament, he's understanding that his life, not just his life, but his suffering, meaning the plan, God's plan for his life, was determined back at conception. But Jeremiah, Jeremiah says this, before I formed you, he understood the, the word of God. He says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you, meaning I set you apart. I have appointed you a prophet to the nation. So not only did God create Jeremiah, but the fact that God would save Jeremiah, set him apart, and ordain his life as a prophet, Jeremiah understood that as something that happened in the plan of God even before he was born and conceived. How do you set someone apart, consecrate them, if they are not a person in the womb? How do you appoint someone to be a prophet if they're not a person in the womb? How do you do that to someone without a personality? It just doesn't make sense. Isaiah 49, verse 1. The Lord called me from the womb. Wait, Isaiah, you weren't even saved yet. Yeah, but God already made his plan to save you in the womb. The Lord called me from the womb. From the, from the body of my mother, he named me. How do you name someone without personhood? And so we see personhood argued from the Bible. And I think right now some of you are thinking, because I've heard this in conversation, well, this is just poetic. This is just symbolic. These are the prophets. And I would say, well, symbolism in the Bible always points back to some type of truth and reality. And so if you're trying to be poetic, what are you being poetic about? 
If you're trying to be symbolic, what are you symbolizing? It seems to me, and all of us very clearly, that the biblical authors are saying, even if they're speaking symbolically, that God ordained life even before conception. It seems that that's the clear biblical teaching, and I think it is. And now the verse, the passage that you're all familiar with if you're a Christian, Psalm 139, verses 13 to 16, and it gets very detailed. And I don't think you would use certain words in poem, in poetry, okay, like unformed substance. I've never heard a, a, a great poem with that term, unformed substance. But there is poetry in here. Let me read it to you. Let me read this into your hearing. Psalm 139, verse 13, it says, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. So there, even if it's poetic, it's this picture of God knitting together, creating the psalmist in his mother's womb. And then verse 14, I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, meaning there's design and purpose in God's creation. My soul knows it very well. But here's where I think the psalmist is not trying to be poetic. He says, my frame. What's the frame? The frame of the child in the womb, the, the embryo or the fetus, my frame was not hidden from you. Even though I was small, even though I, 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 I couldn't be seen maybe at a certain point in the development, when I was being made in secret, what is that trying to be symbolized? The conception, right? I was made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. I've seen commentators who believe that this is talking about the embryo. The embryo. In your book were written, every one of them. So when I was in my mother's womb or before I was even formed, all the days of my life were written, right? In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. There wasn't even a, a birthday yet. But yet God is sovereign and in complete control. And so that's the biblical teaching. Again, there's more, but we'll save that for hopefully uh, the many other decades that I'll be here preaching to you. Okay? But the biblical author is teaching us that life begins at conception, even before conception, the plan of God. Now, as we move into application, we have to talk about some of the moral inconsistencies with the cultural expectation. My aim in these next two portions is to equip us as a church, to engage the current conversation, okay? <clears throat> now, I want you to understand, this is something pointed out by Albert Moeller, the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He's talked about how the world uses terminology, that the difference between how we describe what is in the womb, the difference between abortion and a miscarriage comes down to whether or not the child is wanted, whether or not the child is wanted. Now, to do this, there is um, a New York Times opinion piece from November 25th, 2020, entitled The Losses We Shared. And I've shared this in small group training. I've shared this in Sunday school. I want to share it with you again because I think it's compelling. It's, it helps us engage our culture. And it's written by Meghan Markle. Some of you guys know her. She's the Duchess of Sussex. So she's, this is not a Christian theologian or a pastor writing this. Let me, let me read you what she wrote. And this is the New York Times. New York Times. Is that, is that a Christian publication? <laughs> yeah, far from it, right? Quote, It was a July morning that began as ordinarily as any other day. Make breakfast, 
feed the dogs, take vitamins, find that missing sock, pick up the rogue crayon that rolled under the table. Now, you parents can picture this. Throw my hair into a ponytail before getting my son from his crib. After changing his diaper, I felt a sharp cramp. I dropped to the floor with him in my arms, humming a lullaby to keep us both calm. The cheerful tune, a stark contrast to my sense that something was not right. I knew as I clutched my firstborn child that I was losing my second, end quote. She describes a miscarriage, and she describes what, she lose, what she's losing as her child. She's a celebrity, well-known. Nobody from the secular world or the left would dare say to her, Megan, it's okay. It's just a fetus. It's just an embryo. It's not a child. It's just a, a clump of tissue. It's just part of your body. It's okay. Nobody would say that. In fact, the world would surround her with compassion. Why? Because what she was losing was a child to her. It was, it was something she wanted. And so we see this inconsistency that when it comes to the horrible pain of miscarriage, we describe what is being lost as a child. And the, even the secular culture, the cultural expectation is to show sympathy. Why? Because the mother tragically lost what she wanted. The parents lost what they wanted. The family lost the child, a baby, what they wanted. So you use a certain language, child. How about the, the murder of a pregnant mother? Even from a secular perspective, cases have been considered double homicide because the unborn child within the mother's womb was a life she wanted. So the cultural expectation is to sympathize and rule in favor of the mother and her unborn child. No judge, not even in the state of California, would say, get over it. It's just an embryo or a fetus. Because the cultural expectation is not consistent. If you want it, it's a child, it's a loss. Nobody would say the murder of an unborn child. Well, that's not a person. The secular world actually argues for personhood when they want to. Hear me? When they want to. But when it comes to abortion, when it comes to abortion, the embryo and fetus is unwanted, so we use different terms. The cultural expectation is to celebrate a woman's choice because the woman aborted an embryo or fetus that originated from an unwanted pregnancy, right? An unwanted pregnancy. I did not want so I'm not going to call it a child. I'm not going to call the life a child. And then there's, of course, the very sensitive topic of a child no longer wanted. And, of course, I'm talking about when the doctor gives you that news that your child might or will have pre-birth deformities. So this becomes a child that was once wanted, ideally, but all of a sudden there's News that comes to you that says, well, now I don't think, for whatever reason, I don't think I want to have this child anymore, okay? And so the cultural expectation is what? It's, it's mixed. It's to sympathize with the loss of a child that you once wanted, but to celebrate 
the choice of abortion because that's what you want now. To prevent the child from a life of suffering, to have an easier life or whatever it may be. Well-intentioned from a secular perspective. Now my point is this. If the value of a child, if the value of a person, if personhood is determined by whether you want it or not, whether you want someone or not, then the world is in great moral trouble. Would you agree? Because then you could translate this to an, an elderly person on dialysis or on life support or someone who is dependent on medicine or someone that you just say, hey, you're not as functional. So I don't think that even if you had this conversation with someone who is very anti-Christian, you could somehow reach an agreement if the conversation went long enough and lovingly enough that there's something morally wrong with this world if life or value or personhood is determined by whether or not you want a person or whether you don't want them. Now that leads us to point number four, which is ethical issues. Now I tried my best, and I had office team kind of look at some stats for me, but the studies that you want to look at are CDC and Guttmacher Institute. These aren't Christian institutions, but they have statistics on reproductive health, okay? And you want to look at, the, look at them. These are the ones quoted in theology books and Christian apologetic books. And so this is a late 2017 study, uh, 2018 article publication. Um, but I believe that this does reflect what is true today in 2023. That a recent, a, 27, a late 2017 study of women who had an abortion shows that 73.8% felt pressure to do it. 58.3% of these women who had an abortion did it to make someone else happy. 30% said that they would lose their partners if they kept their child. And I say with compassion and love, but I thought you were pro-choice. Why does it feel like the oppression works the other way around? This is what I mean by the, by, by the, the view of the sanctity of life actually upholds the dignity of women more. The Christian worldview is actually more pro-woman by upholding her God-given dignity and understanding God's design for motherhood. You see, in some cases, having the child, and, and this doesn't bring healing, this is, it's easier said than done, but in the state of California, sometimes if in the case that you have a really irresponsible man who gets a woman pregnant, and this man just wants to get away, to have the abortion actually gives him what he wants. It keeps the woman in oppression. Because her soul, she just committed soul suicide. Her soul's broken. There's psychological effects that she will live with. She sins against God. And the man actually goes free. Now, our prayers for that man. We love that man. God loves that man. We want to save him, counsel him, allow his story to be a story of hope and redemption. But if she were to have that child, and I know it's easier said than done, and if she could receive court-ordered child support, at least the man is held accountable. Even though, and then the church can come alongside that woman. So if I put that before you, if I'm talking to a post-Christian, if I'm talking to a Generation Z person, 
that's talking to me about the Christian worldview, which one do you think better upholds the dignity of women? This is how we must speak. We have to show them which view frees the soul, which is truly oppressing the soul. And I believe the gospel will set people free. And we allow God to deal with people. To abort the child damages the, the physical, psychological, and spiritual soul of the mother where there's deeper consequences. Now, what about abortions to save the life of a mother? Now, according to, according to the CDC, okay, according to the CDC, and this is an older report, but I, I believe the stats still stand, that abortions carried out to save the life of a mother accounts for less than 0.118% of all abortions. Now, this statistic was taken from a 2018 publication by Wayne Grudem, and I believe that he was working off a possibly 2004-2005 CDC study. I tried to do some research to get a more updated one. Articles today are still referring back to that 2005 study. Okay, so here's what I did. I looked at the state of Florida, and the state of Florida, not the state of California, but the state of Florida records a reason for every single abortion that occurs within its borders each year. And in 2020, and I don't have this on the slide, I just found this yesterday, okay, <laughs> or Friday night, there were, in the in the state of California, uh, state of Florida, in 2020, there were 74,868 abortions in Florida, compared to, just for comparison, 154,060 in California on the same year. Then this is from the Guttmacher Institute. When the woman's life was endangered by the pregnancy, 0 0.2%, 0 0.20%, 0.20%, not 20%, 0.2%. So not much change. Right? I mean, you, there is statistical change. I mean, I'm not a math guy. Some of you guys are. But at least you have some updated numbers, 0.2%. And in fact, every single state with abortion ban laws allows for abortions if it is to save the life of the mother. Now, the pro-life position or the sanctity of life position would argue that it is okay. It is morally acceptable to abort a child if it is truly to save the life of the mother, her physical life is in danger. Because we would always save the mother. If, if it's, do you save the child or do you save the mother? It's always save the mother, even if the mother says save the child. Why? Because the mother is the life giver. She can give more life. And the child, in our view, goes directly to heaven. So there's no debate about that, right? There's no d debate about that. To save the life of a mother, there's no moral wrong with then aborting Right? It, it, it comes down to, to your intention. A abortion to save a life is pro-life. An abortion to, with the direct intent to remove the child or eliminate the child in the eyes of God is evil. Well, what about pre-birth deformities? We touched on this, and I want to get into it. So what if the doctor recommends an abortion due to pre-birth deformities? It goes down to how you view personhood. It goes down to what we just said about the biblical understanding of the image of God determine a person's value. 
is that if you wouldn't take the life of a child because he was born with Down syndrome, meaning you look at a child with Down syndrome, you would say it would be evil to eliminate that child. And if that child goes back, if there's a continuous line that goes back to conception, then it is also evil to take a, of the life of an unborn child with the possibility of Down syndrome. So theologically, when God looked at us in the womb, he knew that we would sin. He knew that we were sinful. He knew that we had evil. But rather than eliminating us as defective sinners, he adopted us into his family. And so we have this heart. We have the heart of God. And, and this goes back once again to whether or not you are convinced from Scripture, and I believe Scripture is compelling, and it should convince you that the value of a person is not based on functional ability, but the image of God. And if that person does not change their being from, from the womb into real life, it's just a change of location, then there's some serious moral evil if you were to say, okay, these people who are living who are less functional, handicapped, let's just eliminate them. Well, let's eliminate them. We've got to go this way. Let's eliminate them beforehand to make the world a better place. You've heard that argument in Massachusetts. The world would be a better place without people born with handicap or deformities. It would be better for them. Less suffering for them, less suffering for the world. Let's just take care of it in the womb. You can see that from God's perspective, that's evil. It's morally inconsistent. As Christians, we have to be compassionate about this. We have to be compassionate about this. Okay, and so, so if you understand this. Now, Florida statistics, Florida statistics in the year of 2020, 0.98%. Point 98% of the abortions in the state of Florida was because there was a serious fetal abnormality, okay, 0.98%. Now, here's the statistics that break my heart, okay? 20.4% of the women in the state of, California, uh, state of Florida aborted for social or economic reasons. 74.9%. No reason. No reason stated. Meaning, it's just what they want. They, there is a reason. There's always a reason. I'm being abused. I'm in a difficult situation. I have no support. I, I'm in a crisis right now. I don't know what to do. I'll be disowned from my family. There's always a reason, but 74.9% is not a medical reason. Not a life-threatening reason. What does that say, beloved? I'm, I am concerned about the unborn, but again, they go straight to heaven. I'm more concerned about the souls of these women. These are our sisters. These are our, our mothers, our aunties, our cousins. The world has turned it into a political debate. I'm not interested in the political debate. It matters. I'm interested in the gospel and what this means for the souls of women and children and men as well. Well, what about pregnancies from rape or incest? What about pregnancies from rape or incest? According to Planned Parenthood, okay? Planned Parenthood, good guys or bad guys? <laughs> good guys or bad guys? Look at what I'm quoting you. I want you to be equipped to talk to non-Christians. 
This is not, let's, let's uh, cite Wayne Grudem. Wayne Grudem is cited. What, what's his source? Planned Parenthood. Okay. According to the research arm of Planned Parenthood, pro-abortion, pregnancies resulting from rape or incest, as horrible as they are, account for at most 1% of all abortions, which means in the 99% rate, even in the horrible situation, these mothers are choosing to have their children. I want you to think about that. Now, state of Florida, 2020, statistics. 0.01%, 0.01%, the pregnancy resulted from an incestuous relationship, and it was aborted. 0.15%, the woman was raped. So what this tells us is that what God has ordained in the heart of a mother is 99% doing its work, God's image. That innate connection between a mother and her child. So what must the church do? What much, the church has to understand, the church has to understand that there's genuine pain and hardship experienced by this mother as a victim of rape or incest, and we need to hear the arguments. We need to listen, church. We need to listen to them. That this unwanted embryo, quote-unquote, fetus is part of the woman's body, and, and so she wants to get rid of it so it doesn't remind her of her, her oppression, her, 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 her evil, and what's been done to her. But we remember, we know that the child is not at fault, and the mom knows that too. The, the child holds no moral degree of responsibility for the horrible sin that was done to her, and the mother knows that too. The child should not be put to death because of the sin of the father, and the mother knows that too. 99% of them go through the hardest thing in their life is to have that child. And we know that the father, the father in that case, God wants to save him too, but he must answer to the justice system for the crime of rape. And hopefully, God will save him. One day, he will answer to God. But it is the church's role to walk alongside of these women. And we don't have all the resources. And that's where the women's life clinics help us. How do you walk with these women? How do you walk with these women? It's a greater spiritual suicide for them to go through with abortion. Now they're dealing with needing to receive counsel and care for the trauma that happened to them in terms of sexual assault or rape or incest, and their own conviction that they took the life of an unborn child. What will the church do to step up? What will the church do to step up? That's why for me, and I know for many of you, it's not a political issue. It's about the gospel being applied. God's word for God's design for God's family and God's spiritual family in light of what God wants to do for God's world. So application. In terms of application, the, where we begin is we must proclaim the gospel of Christ and forgiveness. Our aim is not simply to save the life of the unborn, but to save the spiritual soul of the mother or the father. If the soul of the mother is knit together with her unborn child by God's design, then aborting the child is a type of spiritual suicide. Think of the counsel 
that you provide to mothers and families who suffer from a miscarriage, what that mother goes through emotionally, it's the same thing. God designed that same process. It's the same type of counseling, even more so, because there's a moral degree of evil involved. And this explains the accounts of post-abortion suicide, post-abortion depression, as well as the reasons for similar psychological effects as a result from miscarriage. We need to be a church of prayer. We need to be a church not of shame, but of love. But we need to understand what's at stake. It's the woman's soul. Again, the child goes to heaven. The woman's soul needs the church and the gospel of Jesus Christ and Christ to make her whole, as well as the father and families. So I mean it when I say, if you've had an abortion or contemplated abortion, this church will love you. We love you more than you know. We will not be a church that seeks to shame you. We want you to be honest. I know that in an honor-shame society like ours, this church would be the last place that you want to talk about that. But you need to apply the gospel to your heart. It's time that you come to the cross and realize that Jesus' blood was, will be applied to you, was applied to you, and receive his forgiveness and grace, and allow your story to turn into one of redemption so that you can proclaim God's hope to others who face a similar situation that you face. Second, we must walk alongside those who are hurting. And so, th- so this includes... Uh, those who have gone through post-abortion. Uh, th- this includes the young couple, once again, who is ashamed to th- tell their parents that they're pregnant, but they choose to have the child or they're disowned from their families. How do we walk alongside of them? This includes anybody who's hurting. This includes the, the couple seeking ethical advice for pre-birth deformities. This includes walking alongside of the families who need help because of their condition, right? And thirdly, we want to support local women's pregnancy counseling care clinics because they have resources. They have ultrasound images. Focus on the Family argues that 78% of women who see an ultrasound of their baby in the womb reject abortion. But, but you know, this battle is deeper than I understand right now, and I don't have all the research. But if you go to the table afterwards, Obria, and our sister Karina uh, is there, Karina's there, the director of advancement of Obria, and, and she can tell you about the abortion, abortion pill. Not the, not, I'm not talking about the morning after pill, abortion pill, where you take that pill and it'll do its work for you. And even the pharmaceuticals are saying it's dangerous, state of California, don't allow this to go over the counter. And of course, Planned Parenthood and their lobbying arm, they want to push that over the counter. The enemy does not want the woman to hear a heartbeat, the mother to hear the heartbeat. The enemy does not want the mother to see that image of life. And so the battle is even deeper. So even if you have this technology, it's about praying. It is spiritual warfare. And it's for the souls, once again, of these women, of these mothers. So what Obria, clinics like Obria. Obria is formerly Whittier Area Pregnancy Clinic 
And, and so we've, we've supported them for decades. And they're Obria Medical Clinics. You know what they're up against? They've always had a challenge in the state of California. But I speak frankly now of things that you all understand. This is not political. You know this to be true. You hear it all over the news. After Roe v. Wade was overturned, the state of California made it its aim to go after life and to be a sanctuary for abortion for other states. And so what that means is that women's life clinics are under the gun. They're facing challenges that they haven't faced before. These are growing challenges. And so they're all strategizing. They're all meeting with their boards. They're all reaching for resources seeing how to strategize on the front line here in the state of California. And, and they have to adjust. And so we're, we're, we're praying for them, waiting for them, ready to support them when we look at those strategies and how the church might support. But what they offer are some of the services that reach out to these women. Pregnancy testing, abortion info, not referral, STD testing and treatment, ultrasound, reproductive loss, uh, STD testing, all of that, right? all the counseling, all the care, the post-abortion care, uh, people who have gone through the abortion and want the, want the healing now, want the forgiveness, they have these, uh, these workshops and these counseling processes where, they can, where these women and these fathers can receive, receive healing. You can go to the table afterwards and you can talk to their representative, Karina, you can talk to Indora or our sister Katie, they, they're working on the side of our church in these connections. And what we want to do is at minimum, by the end of January, at minimum right now, we want to raise $30,000. $30,000. I know that we've raised a lot more in the past, but we want to raise $30,000. And depending on the strategies that come out, if it applies to our church, we want to see how we can continue to support in the future. But you can go to that table and you can find out some of their immediate needs. They need people to pray for them. They need people to go there and pray with them. They need some IT help, just volunteer people, IT meaning uh, technology and setting up some networking and some computers. They, 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 need, they need volunteers, and they need funding. Planned Parenthood is heavily funded. You Google Planned Parenthood, and it breaks my heart because when you look at the Pasadena Clinic, it looks really nice. It looks like a, like, a, like a college lobby. You know they're heavily funded. But the women coming out of there, their hearts are broken. If you go there and pray for them, uh, every single week there's a day where they have certain procedures. It's on the same day of the week. You see these women. They need help. Then you go down the street, and there's the Obria Pasadena Clinic. And you can see a difference in their facility. Right? Because they're not funded in the same way. And, that, and, and the, the message that came to my heart is the church can do better. The church can do so much better than Planned Parenthood. We do have sovereign Planned Parenthood. Divine, sovereign, I'm not trying to be corny. The church can do so much better in supporting these clinics that are on the front line that can't advertise their faith. Otherwise, they'll just get eliminated right away. It broke my heart. And so when the CEO came and talked to our pastors and said, 
we have a dream to create sanctuaries of life in the state of California around churches with a vision for life. We said we're in. We need to see the strategic plan, but we're in. Our people are in. We've been in it. We're waiting. We're praying together. So 30,000, here's how you can get involved. QR code, I'm tall but not that tall, so you can go over me. Click one to get involved, and you can get information, or you can go to the table. The other side is to donate. You can donate online. You can go also go directly through our website, drop-down menu, Sanctity of Life. If you're writing a check, which you can drop in the box outside today, or you can give through the end of January, just put Sanctity of Life in the memo line. Again, more information is available for you. Please come by the table outside, Obria, and you can get all the information, and you can ask them exactly what this 30000 would go towards, various needs in terms of their operation. They need to strengthen their operation just to continue to operate at a certain standard in our state. They really are on the front line, and we want to be there with them, with Obria, okay? And I, and I will end by continually inviting, if there's anybody in here who needs to receive the gospel, or you want to talk about your hurt or pain, please talk to us. Talk to our pastors. We do love you more than you know. We do not cast judgment on those who come to Christ. Christ offers healing beyond what you can comprehend. He loves you more than you will ever know because he's the one that gave you value and personhood. He will turn your story of brokenness into one of redemption and glory. Let's pray. Father, we come before you on the Sanctity of Life Celebration Sunday, and we pray, Lord, that you would help us as a church celebrate life and be involved in what you are doing in this world through agencies like Obria and, and our church. Help us. Father, I pray that if anybody in here needs to receive you as their Lord and Savior, I pray, Lord, that you would save them. Speak to them now that Jesus Christ came, he died, he rose again, and he's coming again. Help them to confess their sins. Help them to come before you. Help them to repent. Change them, Lord, and give them new life. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.